welcome back as we continue uh, the journey with uh, Stuart and um, this uh, this wonderful story from a from a country kid in Queensland to the man of God that we see today in front of us. It's um, a great privilege to have Stuart joining us again. And uh, last time we finished about the uh, core idea on the core idea of discipleship that it's caught, not taught. Stuart, in your journey, what happened after that? I need to make a slight correction, Dave, which is very unusual that I should correct, deem to correct a fellow like you. But I'm not quite a country boy. Uh, we actually grew up in an outer suburb on acreage, outer suburb of Brisbane, mm. and uh, we lived on the edge of a swamp. So whenever it rained, we would flood. <laughs> and... Uh, we we kids thought that was exciting, sloshing around in water all the time. But the the suburb was so poor and unlivable; it's now been obliterated from the maps of Brisbane. It no longer exists. It's been renamed more delicate things. So just a little um, correction mm-hmm. there. Well, in uh, as we said earlier, when I was in theological college in the daytime, nighttime in university, because mm-hmm. yes, I did push on with my own education. Um, and I then came into contact with firstly the Billy Graham guys and then the, uh, he passed me on to a fellow in Brisbane who knew a little bit about discipling. And as I met with him every week, uh, this was my first church, church of a couple of hundred people uh, in a suburb in Brisbane, in a city suburb. And I was exercising an evangelistic gift that uh, God was pleased to give me and very quickly things started to grow in this church and and uh, there were 30 or 40 new converts. So mm. six months in, I thought, well, I, I need to do more than have converts. I've got to disciple these people. So I made a, an announcement in the church on the Sunday. All of you who have found Jesus in the last six months, um, if you want to go further in the faith, please come and see me in uh, my office at uh, 7 o'clock on Friday night. Only three turned up, hmm. and that told me something about my powerful preaching or teaching. <laughs> it, it didn't leave with much an impact, but I, okay, I will now work on these three. And I met with these three guys every week on the hmm. Friday night, uh, just going through some of the basics to which I referred before. And um, But then at the end of that year, uh, I was called uh, to be a cross-cultural worker in South Asia. And so I left. And it was, what was of interest was uh, I never met these guys. Two of them went off to other countries because they were overseas students. And I've never had contact with them again. Uh, but the one who lived in Australia, I never saw him for 10 years. Hmm. And uh, so I asked him what he was doing. He said, well, you know, the time that you and I spent together, that was so impactful. Uh, I I accepted a call from God that I'd become a pastor and I went to uh, Bible school and uh, and then in the church. uh, I've now led about 350 people to the Lord. And Mm. I said, yes, but um, have you gone on discipling them to where they're reproducing? He said, no. No, you only showed me how to lead people to the Lord. That's as far as you got. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> the, the, the new believer will watch you. He will follow you. 
he usually won't go further than you've taken him. And just through the flow of history and my life and so forth, unfortunately, I had to leave off at that stage with this guy because we didn't have any communication means in the country to which I went. It was a restrictive country. And so there was no way, you know, we we obviously didn't have computers and things like that. The only thing we had was snail mail and it would take a month to turn a letter around. And even if it was turned around, it would get lost often in the post uh, because the locals would steal the stamps off the, off the envelope and you'd ne- <laughs> never see it again. So it was impossible to work internationally. Um, so that was, you know, when you're learning to be a disciple and learning to be a disciple maker, you will make mm. lots of mistakes. That's mm. okay, but uh, try not to make the same mistake twice. And, of course... <laughs> I lost a lot. I uh, made lots of mistakes. But in the uh, 14 years that uh, I was in South Asia, uh, the pastor to whom I started to relate in a discipling situation, every week he and I were in touch. Now, yes, I just said the mail gets lost, and it does. But it didn't matter whether the mail came through or not. Every week he and I would write to one another, and Mm. always I was accountable to him for those basics in the faith. And he would say to me, don't report to me that you're only reading the Bible devotionally uh, six days out of seven. That's not good enough. I want to hear you seven days out of seven, Mm. and you're going to tell me what you're reading and what you're discovering. So he really held be accountable, which was very important because I'm living out there all alone and accountable to nobody and uh, things can easily slip. But now in this new country, uh, I had arrived there with a very clear understanding that I wanted to make disciples and disciples who would multiply um, because that's the only way we're ever going to make up for lost time. And it's very hard for people to grasp the difference between additions to the kingdom of God and multiplying in the Mm. kingdom of God. Mm. And one of the things which helped me to grasp this was a, a little bit of mathematics. You can check me out on this, but if I made an offer... Uh, to give you, um, say, uh, $1 million, or um, if I offered to give you, say, uh, one cent, mm. uh, multiply, uh, but then two cents, four cents, eight cents, and I, and I did that for one month uh, each day. So in other words, that's mm. uh, doubling up uh, 32 times over. Uh, which would you choose? Well, most people jump on the million dollars. But if you go the other way, accepting a doubling each day, you'd end up with ten million seven hundred thirty-four thousand four hundred eighteen four hundred eighteen and twenty-four cents. So mm. that's ten million. Or a better way to visualise it is if you look at a chessboard that's got sixty-four squares on it, and I offer you. Uh, Say so one gra- would you like a, a railway train full of wheat? And we used to do this when I lived in Asia because hunger's a big thing. Mm. Uh, would you like a railway train with 100 carriages full of wheat? Or would you accept a grain of wheat on my checkerboard uh, 
And then the next square, the black and white square, the next square I'll give you two grains, the next square four grains, and so you go on right through the 64 squares. Well, of course, most people jump on the, the big train with, uh, mm-hmm. with all of the 100 carriages uh, full of wheat. But if you accepted the other, that's uh, one or two to the power of 64, you can end up covering the whole of India to a depth of about 20 metres with mm-hmm. wheat. In salvation terms, uh, if I win a thousand people every day, in every week, in every month, in every year, I'm, I'm and assuming that there's zero growth population, so it's plateaued at 2.7 billion people, a thousand a day, every day. It would take me up to 7,000 years Mm. to reach the population of the world. But if I win one disciple and I work with that guy for six months and he reproduces, so at the end of six months there's two, at the end of a second six months there's four and eight and so forth, every six months, that would take 35 to 40 years. In other words... Mathematically, it's possible to win the whole world in one generation. And that's the power of multiplication as compared with addition. And that was important to me because when I went to this country, uh, uh, South Asia is crowded with people. And how the heck are we going to reach all these millions and millions and millions of people? And not Mm. only that... I wanted to reach the majority community, which was totally untapped. The history of missions is around the world that the most responsive people are the animistic people, the tribal people. Uh, and then you come into the major religions of Hinduism, Buddhism and, uh, uh, and Islam. Uh, low-caste Hindus, the Dalits or the untouchables, are likely to respond as a way out of their predicament. You go up to the Brahmins at the top, etc. The most difficult to reach, of course, are the Muslims, and that's because of their law of apostasy in part, because mm. if they leave their religion, that's treason and uh, that's death. So that's a disincentive to leave Islam. But I arrived there... And uh, with this burning ambition to make disciples, and it's the only way we're going to reach this nation, nothing was being done amongst the majority religion. Uh, Everything was done amongst the tribal people and uh, a few low-caste Hindus. And and every time I I would share my my hope and my vision with senior colleagues and senior uh, missionaries, they always said to me, Stuart, you're too young, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, what you want to do is too difficult, too dangerous, you could get killed, da-da-da-da-da, those sort of things. It's impossible. Mm. And when someone says to me something is impossible, my heart leaps. Because if you're in a situation where there's nothing is happening, what we tend to do is lower our expectations down to uh, excuse our own incompetence, our own lack of fruitfulness, mm. rather than lift our expectations up to what the Word of God says. And when you look at the Word of God, uh, it's just a, a raft of scriptures to what God wants to do. Mm. And, uh, you know, that God so loved the world, he sent Jesus, the whole world. He didn't mean to exclude massive sections of the population because we regard them as too hard to reach. It says he's not willing that any should perish. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The spirit within, within me is greater than that which is in the world. All of these things are there. So then we have to ask the question, well, 
what am I doing or not doing which is preventing God from doing what he wants to do? And, uh, well, the first thing he wants, wants to see me doing is making disciples who are going to multiply. But how will that be possible? So mm. a few things happened. I spent the first three years learning the language, getting into the culture and these sort of things every day. Lord, where is that man that you want me to work with? Mm. Who is he? Uh, and Lord, while I'm learning the language, it'd be great if he knew a little bit of English too. That would be helpful to me. <laughs> and and it was three years. Uh, and I was getting a little bit despondent when one day in the capital city of this country, I was standing in the dirt and dust, sweating out in a hot monsoon season. And along the road, there came this guy and I saw him coming and and um, the Lord just spoke into me. He's the man you've been waiting for. Mm. He came and uh, he stopped, talked to me for 15 minutes, then walked off. I just knew he was the one. Of course, we'd categorize that today. I'm talking about events long ago. Today we'd say, ah, there's your man of peace, mm. which indeed, uh, of course, he was. And I raced home and told my wife of this great news. And she said, well, where is he? Uh, he's living way down the south of the country, actually. Well, that's not much good. We're way up the north. I said, yeah, he'll come. He'll come. You'll see. So I continued to pray on. And sure enough, some months later, he and his wife turned up in our city on my knocking at my front door through a particular set of circumstances. They'd arrived in my city. And so then I started to work with him. He was from the majority community mm. and uh, he was open. He was hungry. And uh, I wasn't the only one, of course, that fed into his life. There were others, mm. but I was the, the first one who took him seriously and set about meeting with him week by week by week by week. And again, it was an unusual thing. When I choose to work with, with people, I have a, uh, a grid that I put them through as to, in, in my own mind. I say they have to be flats, F-L-A-T-S, faithful, loyal, uh, teachable, faithful, loyal, available, teachable in a servant spirit. That's F-L-A-T-S. But this guy, he failed all those tests. Hey, great, great warning here. We can have our theories. We can have our, uh, our preferences. But yeah. sometimes the Lord doesn't confirm to those things. I would never have chosen to work with this guy because he kept arguing with me and fighting with me. And, and my wife begged me to give up on him and she reminded me of my own principles I said no I'm sure this is the man <laughs> and for three years it was <laughs> like uh, two brothers struggling together and the penny dropped and then he started to multiply wow mm. and I can back out of the story then <laughs> because he takes over and and generations of majority community people uh, have come to the Lord through this guy. The, the, the fellows who are further down, by the time you reach the third or fourth generation, they wouldn't know too much about this guy, but he was there multiplying again and again and again. And, and there were one or two others in the country at that time. Um, I, I should add there were the things in that country which suddenly made it harvest ready. We had been through wars and revolutions. These things shake up the societal structures break things down and people become more open to the things of God. So yeah. that was a background. And then there'd been intensive prayer 
Mm. Uh, as we're recording this, we're much aware of um, what's happened in Afghanistan in recent yes. days and everyone is despairing. And uh, I'm not that despaired because I've seen this sort of thing happen again and again. The killing fields of, of Cambodia, the same thing there. Whenever you have wars and revolutions and bloody battles and that, the, the communities open and you have four years in which to sow and harvest before they re-solidify after these major cataclysmic events. Mm. And uh, because one of the things that happened, world attention focuses on these disasters and huge amounts of prayer mm. get uh, drilled into those countries which otherwise people don't even know where they are on the map. And you think of Afghanistan in 2021, the number of people praying now for Afghanistan, we are going to see a reaping there uh, because people are now praying and fasting for Afghanistan as they did in the country where I worked and we saw three million people killed there in the war that we lived through. That's mm. a significant number of people. So that attracted world attention and prayer and we're in the middle of that and yeah, that was the start um, wow. of of, uh, of the movement there. And then uh, my wife and I eventually, we moved to another city all alone and started all over again where we had to learn some very, very important lessons there in uh, identification or, as we technically say, contextualisation, learning how to live and, and become like one with the people based on what um, the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians where he said, I became a slave uh, that I might uh, I became mm. a Jew, like a Jew to the Jews, like a Gentile to the Gentiles, uh, that I might win some. And there's a challenge if any of you guys listening to this happen to be working outside of your own culture. The last thing you want to give up on is your culture because you think it's the best. Well, you're wrong. My culture is the best. <laughs> it's the way we think. And, but so Paul says, I became a slave. That means he gave up everything, mm. all his rights. And uh, he became like a Gentile, like a Jew, that he would win some and, and completely evolved himself into whatever the cultural norms where he was. And that's what we had to do. And uh, a lot of people who don't want to do that, who want to live out their own culture in the country to which they go, uh, they seldom see success, but they'll be very critical of those of us who are out there doing these things like, uh, well, Hudson Taylor, when he went to China, uh, he dressed as a Chinese person, he grew his hair long, etc. Oh, he copped a shellacking mm. <laughs> from uh, other missionaries who wanted to live as Western missionaries. But... Uh, Hudson Taylor, of course, along with prayer and all these other things, became very successful. So yeah. that's a, a brief recount of the start of a movement uh, which continues to this day uh, yeah. in that country. Having uh, having been with you into those situations and seen some of the, the movement and the generations of disciples, it's um, it's amazing. And um, just to recap, you know, there was a there's a situation of social turmoil there was passionate prayer uh you had to um you had to find the person of peace the in our language today but the key inside leader and then um uh, issues of contextualization really uh, i understand contextualization is removing barriers that people may hear um and usually the barriers are cultural our the, the sending culture there. Um, and 
you started off by talking about multiplication. Really great. What about um, um, the 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 Bible? Where does the Bible play a role in all of that um, with the person of peace? Well, <laughs> the Bible is absolutely fundamental. Um, what you, if you're operating cross culturally and interreligiously, you need to know uh, what are the appropriate scriptures to use. I mean, God promised to bless His word, not mine. And uh, so my role there is to somehow use the scriptures appropriately as that sword which cuts and divides, gets inside a person. And when I'm uh, using the scriptures, I do it in such a way it, it's not up for debate. Um, it's it, it's as I whether well, I did this uh, a month or so ago when I was mentioned in the earlier podcast meeting with this leading scientist Mm. where I said to him, hey, look, we're just going to have a look in Genesis. And now I know as a scientist you'll have evolution and all these sorts of things. I don't want to waste my time thinking about these things. But I, I put, put it this way. If this passage is true, then uh, what would you do about it? Uh, if this passage, I'm not even insisting it is true. Of course, I know it's true, but mm. this allows the Holy Spirit to take the word which we're looking at and and uh, get it into his heart. Mm. Of course, um, if you're meeting, say, with Muslim people, they are taught that the Christian scriptures are all corrupted and only the Quran is true and so forth. Uh, but I would, whilst I would have, say, a Quranic verse which uh, exemplified what I wanted to say, I wouldn't stay in the Quran. I'd just use that as an illustration to open the door lock to the Scriptures and say, now, um, you know, let's say we're going to be talking about creation. Well, the Quran says in one place that Allah created the world, uh, I think it was in six days, another place it says he created in eight days, and so you've got all these variant stories. So I say, well, we'll just put those aside now. Let's just look at the Bible record and... Uh, yeah, st stick with the Bible. And they would accept that. And uh, over time, uh, the the other scriptures, whether it was that the Hindu Bhagavad Gita or the, the Buddhist or the Muslim or the whatever, those scriptures would fade into the background. We would just focus wholly on what the Bible says. And that is the thing which really uh, harvests deep into people's lives. Mm. Mm. Just, just fantastic, Stuart. Um, I'm just going to throw a couple of questions at you, um, but they kind of interlink with each other. Um, and and I'll let you just bounce off that as we finish off this next podcast. Um, it sounds like um, if I just go out and just stand on a street corner for three years and wait for somebody to turn up. Somebody will just turn up. And, um, you know, it sounds like, is it easy or are there costs involved in, in, in making disciples? The second thing, which is an interrelated question, is when you went out, what took you by surprise? What didn't you expect when you actually turned up in the, in the harvest field and you had to learn how to do things differently. What were you learning? What were the lessons that you were learning? So 
Is this just as simple as pressing a button? Is this easy stuff or is this is there stuff going on underneath the surface that we have to understand and know? And what took you by surprise? What were the lessons that you learnt as you um, uh, yeah, made disciples and saw the genesis of a movement happen there? Yeah, the cost factor. Remember I said I used to... Uh, I, I trialled my vision. Oh, by the way, in addition to prayer, I omitted to add the most important accelerant or fertilizer of prayer is fasting. Mm. And when you link prayer with fasting, you have very loaded ammunition in in your gun ready to fire. But I'm not talking about the stuff which is talked of fasting here in Australia. People say, oh, I gave up chocolates or I gave up Mm. strawberry ice cream. I just... Oh, I discipline myself. I only have vanilla ice cream or some of those things. Or the more spiritual ones will say, um, oh, I don't know, a Daniel fast or a, this fast or that. By fasting, I just mean going without food. Uh, and you have to keep water up, of course, otherwise you dehydrate, particularly in tropical countries, very quickly. But So it, it was through fasting that I got encouragement from the Lord he gave me a vision. I haven't talked about vision at all, and that's very important as well, but he gave me a vision of seeing 5,000 of these people come to the Lord. And uh, you say, well, 5,000 is not many. I mean, we're talking of a country with got hundreds of millions. So, but 5,000, there'd been... William Carey went to work in this area of the world, so there'd been missionaries from all sorts of countries there for 200 years, and no one would know of any more than two or three from the majority community that had ever come to the Lord. So 5,000 was actually quite good. Yeah. And so that that gave me the figure of what the harvest could be like. It didn't mean that I had to personally do that myself or even it happened in my time, mm. but that that was the thing. So I, I never shared that with anyone because they would think I'm totally cuckoo because they're all telling me, that uh, you know this is too difficult, or you might lose your visa, uh, or um, you could be killed. And my answer to those sort of questions was, "Well, hang on, I actually died before I came here." Uh, Jesus said I had to take up my cross, the instrument of death, and 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 so I just died. Um, didn't worry me how I was going to die or when I was going to die, whether I'd be killed. I hope it wouldn't be too painful. Bullet in the head, that's okay. But you see, if you are not afraid to die, you become a very dangerous person. Mm. A lot of Muslim uh, extremists, they're what we call terrorists and so forth, uh, they say, you Christians love life more than we love death. Uh, They, of course want to die on jihad because that's the only hope they've got of getting through to paradise with the 72 beautiful perpetual virgins. <laughs> that's quite an attraction sensually. But they're right. We hang on to life so much. So the cost is die, live dead. You're a grain of wheat. You've fallen into the ground. Don't struggle 
to try to get up to the daylight again. Yeah, there'll be times when the clods on top of you will be black and heavy and dark and lonely and you want to get out. No, I died. And if I stay dead, there's a possibility of my being the means of a great harvest of all the other grains will come out of this shoot. So I know of... Well, the Apostle Paul, of course, he was a terrorist. <laughs> he was out chasing Christians, wanting to drag them to prison and all that sort of stuff. And this terrorist, once he found the Lord, he became the most successful evangelist. The same is true today. I know of people who were religious terrorists, and when they become followers of Jesus, they simply transition their zeal and their passion into talking about Jesus. They make wonderful evangelists. In fact, as I think of the harvest field in some of the countries, I think of Afghanistan now, I think of Iran now where the heavens are open, and I often think, actually, Ayatollah Khomeini coming into Iran and introducing the Islamic Republic and Sharia law and all of the countless thousands of people who were killed that was a great favour he did, <laughs> just like what's happening in China with persecution under President Xi. These people actually help the gospel because people then, they start to look for deeper meaning in life and Muslim people are constantly saying there has to be a better way than this. They mm. hate all the wars and the killings and that go on in the turmoil of those countries and they become so open for the gospel. So I relish the volatility and the turmoil, I don't run away from it. It's the it's human nature to run away and get on a plane and flee out of the country. No, 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 no. No, I go the other way. I run toward it. And, and I, I've seen wonderful things happen. I don't care about my own life. And yes, I've often been threatened and and, and terrible things have happened around me and in my family and all of those sort of things. But uh, just accept the cost and, and I trust uh, that I will not die before I have completed the task to which I'm called. And uh, that's been proven again, again, again. So I think that's enough on cost. Uh, I, th I think the biggest surprise was, well, there are two of them. It's very sad. Um, the, the condition of the missionary enterprise mm. and the state of the church uh, of course, you have church in every country, no matter how restrictive it is, you'll have missionaries in every country. But to think that missionaries had worked here for 200 years and there was no response from the majority community and nobody ever stopped and asked, well, what are we doing or not doing that that's getting in the way of what God wants to do? Because his word is very clear. He loves the whole world. He loves all people of every religion. He wants them to come into his kingdom so much so that he sent Jesus. So there's something wrong. There's a disconnect. We need to stop and say, hey, hang on a minute. Um, let's go before the Lord and, and, and ask him, what, what are we going to change? Mm. But the problem is that when you go out into these sort of works where there's no fruitfulness, we then content ourselves with busyness. 
And so we'll get involved in uh, projects and mm. development and agriculture and education and medicine. Now, all of those things are good. I'm not decrying any of them. And we should be doing those things. They are a part of who we are. They are an expression of God's love that people should have good medical care and agricultural food help and all that sort of stuff. Every one of those things is good. But if that's all you do without explaining why you are there, mm. uh, you, you've got deeds without words. Mm. And uh, we need both. We need the word and the deed running together. Mm. So it, it was a shock to find out how many exhausted missionaries were there and working, 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 but totally uh, ineffective in reaching the majority community. The other was the hostility that I encountered in the church, and, and I've now got used to this. If you say you're going to work amongst a particular uh, majority community, let's say you're going to work amongst Muslims. Well, lots of bad things have happened over the centuries, and I can understand why a church in a minority country is sort of bowed down and and afraid because they're the butt of so much persecution. But uh, the church didn't want to have anything to do with reaching majority community, and they didn't want me to have anything to do with that either. In fact, uh, I know that some of them were later reporting me to the police, hoping I'd be deported. And more recently, I was in another continent. I was speaking to pastors from um, 19 different countries, a conference uh, of 2,000 pastors, mm -hmm. and I was speaking to them about what's happening in their country, how the majority, they're rapidly taking over everything, and, and uh, these people were in Muslim countries. And at the end of two days, I asked a question. Well, I, I just said, now, have you got any questions? The first hand which shot up was a pastor who said, Sir, are you trying to say to us that we should witness to Muslims? Don't. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, but that's normal. That's normal. There is this fear. There is this reluctance. And uh, mm. we have to step outside of that. So they were two big shocks. Um, I guess the other thing with which I was confronted was my, my own inadequacy and uh, that I had to become more serious about my own prayer life. Uh, I was in a spiritual battle here. Mm. And when the program of Christian business is stripped away from you in church land, back in the countries from which we go, you've suddenly got nothing to occupy you, your mind or, and anything. So what are we then going to do? And I had to learn personal disciplines of, of devotions and prayer and all that sort of stuff. And then intentional, uh, expecting God to speak in supernatural ways, mm. which we seldom encounter home here. And he did that again and again and again, uh, not just through dreams and visions, but through healings and deliverances and uh, sending rain to break drought and uh, deliverance from violent situations where people want to kill me. All these sort of things you read about in the Bible, we encountered there. And that was such a privilege uh, 
to have my own worldview significantly changed. The problem then was when I ultimately came back to Australia, I continued to operate on that plane and got into great trouble because other people weren't operating like that. But that's the stuff of a a future podcast, perhaps. But if you go, no matter where you go, be intentional and and understand that uh, as you as you go, uh, you've got to have your thoughts um, all carefully in place. You can't just walk blindfold into these situations. And uh, the intentionality is that I'm going to make disciples who will glorify God. And uh, that's going to be my... I'll have to do other things, of course, as as a member of any team involved in the flow of history. But uh, that's going to be my major in, intention. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stuart, as we listen to, you know, the idea of contextualization and multiplication, finding people of peace, starting what we would describe today as discovery Bible studies, but that term wasn't around when you were doing that but in the midst of all that the personalization of the call having to die and the idea of prayer and fasting in in the volatility but also dealing with uh, the church and as we look back in history you know every every great move of God has always been attacked by the church whether you're talking about the move from the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles from Paul into uh, Paul's major problem was often not the Gentiles that he was reaching, but the Jewish people that he that resisted that, even Jewish believers, and so we're we're not without parallels today. David, I just finish off with this: wherever you go, in your own situation, your own suburb, in the country where you are, or if you're sent to work in another culture, make sure that you have clarity around what you're doing, what you want to do. And for me, my goal was to start with one man. And yes, it has to be man to man. I I never cross over into the sexes there. But with that person, I wanted to be able to present him mature. Colossians 1.28 says, um, uh, Paul speaking, says, Oh, we proclaim him, that's Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present Everyone perfect in Christ. So my goal is to find that man, we call him the person of peace today, and to sow sow into his life to present them faultless. And my strategy for that will be discipling, Matthew 28, 19, and the structure will be through small groups. Now, small groups, that's all you can do in difficult-to-access countries. I'm so grateful that I've spent so much of my life in these literally God-forsaken, sometimes volatile, violent places because you can't have anything more than a small group. Uh, And so the goal of, of seeing them become mature, the strategy of discipling, the structure of small groups and... uh, that's what I was looking for and God favoured us in, in doing just that. And if you don't have that, then the, then the urgent will displace the important and the enemy of the best is the good and you'll spend a lot of time majoring on minors. So get your understanding right. Thank you, Stuart. We look forward to the next segment of this podcast as we talk about 
moving from movement into South Asia to the perhaps some of the most difficult of mission fields, churches in Australia. <laughs> 